celebrating each week by looking at a different year, kind of moving through the years, and then also by honoring some families in our church. We, we did that last week, and we are going today to look at 1997. So in 1997, we did something that I would say was like the top five things that we've, we've ever done here at Gospel Light. And that was, I love this, that was building on the original storefront to your right, the original storefront was two stories, brown, old, ugly building. We actually added a third story to that building. We were locked, you know, landlocked. We had no space to grow, to build. And so Brother Cliff Kaufman, genius. He's a genius to this day. And Cliff said, preacher, you know, we're out of room. I think, we can, I think that old building was built to go up. And I said, well, man, I never thought about that. So we got, you know, we got approvals and all that. Sure enough, it was, it was built to put a third story. So 50 years after it was built, it got added a third story, you know, and, and it went up. And we, we added 3,000 square feet of, of, of meeting place and Sunday school space. And it was just awesome to tear a hole through that roof and go up. And uh, so many memories about that move because that move really secured our stability there for a while because we didn't have any, any room really to grow. So that's, the, that's a, a full picture of what it was like back in the day till about 2004. And then this was a great picture. In 97, we had a big snow, right? Well, because I live close to the church, we never cancel church, ever. I can walk to church. I mean, worst case scenario, it's me and my family. You know, at least we get some kind of offering. Anyway, and... Uh, <clears throat> Just kidding, just kidding. And, uh, but so anyway, we ran that Sunday. It was bad. I mean, nobody came, but a guy called me up and said, Preacher, if I bring my trailer, do you want to pick up kids in the neighborhood? So Bucky Robinson and I got on the trailer. We drove around the neighborhood and picked up about 25 kids, <laughs> put them on hay bales, and brought them to church. And so we had a few in church that Sunday. That was a really cool story, you know. Uh, that was a great memory in 1997. Anyway, <clears throat> and then here was a track. We, we, you know, we, we started getting upscale about right now. Hey, when you can produce your first color brochure. I mean, you know, this was it for us. We had been that black and white church until now. You know, just a regular, you know, p- copy tracks and order cheap tracks. But we said, we're going to the next level, you know. So we made this beautiful track. And there's Ken Reed, who's... Our, our sound man and our media director at Gospel Light, look at him there, just little, short, chubby guy, you know. <laughs> and uh, Lydia Chittum, who now is Lydia Vidanage next to him to his left, there's Josiah and Nick at the bottom, and then Bucky with one of our bus riders on his shoulder. That, believe me, that, that pretty much is a picture of who Bucky Robinson is. He loves children. And then, <clears throat> that's a graduating class of 97, so I don't know if Monica Brown is here today, but Monica, there you are, and uh, looking all spiffy. And then Bridget, see Bridget, Clowers, Pounders, to the left there, 20 years ago. I'm not aging these ladies. I'm just telling you it was 20 years ago, okay? I mean, you got to preach the truth around here, okay? just through all there is. All right, go to the next one. And uh, there's Mo and Joe back in the day. And I love that picture because it's got the basketball, you know. That's been a part of our family. we got a full court basketball court in our backyard, you know. So these guys grew up. Loving each other and loving basketball. For sure the second one. The first one's debatable. Anyway, and uh, <clears throat> there's a family picture and then another family picture. I love Joe's smile there. It's kind of like, I'm cool, man. I'm cool. 
You know I'm cool. So anyway, Joe's always had the smile going on. Joe's still got the smile going on. So that's the family. 1997, so 98 next week. Hope to see you there. Don't miss our anniversary celebration each week. Well, we're in the second week of our sermon series on foundation of the family. And, and we're focusing on marriage for the first couple of weeks. So this will be our second week that we discuss marriage. By the way, I think this, this message, as in last week's message, could also apply to parenting because there's no greater way to parent our children than to love our spouse. It's the greatest gift you can give to your children is love for your spouse and expressing that love. And then relationships, all relationships can be blessed, nurtured, and improved by the principles we're going to share from God's word this morning out of the book of Song of Solomon. So last week we talked about romantic love as it, as it is uh, as it is exclusive. That was kind of the It's sparked when it's exclusive, and uh, that's how it began, and that's how it will continue to be sparked because of its exclusivity. So remember, the Song of Solomon, just to review real quick, is a book of poems and love songs written by Solomon describing a love that he had observed, but he had probably never really experienced. How sad. How sad for a man to write an entire book, the best book ever written on marriage and expressing love. No doubt, nothing even comes close to it. God put a whole book in the Bible about it. And yet Solomon never experienced it. And I, I, I come to that conclusion based on the book of Ecclesiastes. Because Solomon looked back on his entire life and said, everything's a waste. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines and he tried to find true love but never found it because true love can only be sparked when it's exclusive. So this whole book is dedicated to teaching us how this kind of love can be experienced in our marriages, which tells me this, that God is fired up about this kind of love. It's a great thing. God wants us to know that. He wants us to experience that. So he gives us this book. So last week we talked about it being exclusive. We used this verse. I want to put it on the screen. Song of Solomon 2.14. Where she said, oh my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet, your face is comely. How many remember the old song, the old hymn, hundreds of years ago? He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Remember that? The cleft of the rock. Speaking of this Verse, the cleft of the rock, a crevice in the rock, a small crack, a small opening where historians tell us at the most, at the very most, you could fit two people. Just two people. That's it. This was a place that she saw herself with her loved one and only him. Exclusivity. A place of protection. Nobody else. One of the keys to romantic love is it must be exclusive. It has to be this way. It has to be that all of my focus and attention is exclusively on one person. And that's my wife. Now, you might be asking, well, does that mean I can't have any other relationships? Well, a couple of verses here just before I move on to that. First Timothy, uh, Song of Solomon, rather, chapter 2, verse 16 says, My beloved is mine and I am his. Do you see the exclusiveness here? My beloved is mine, I am his, and his only. And then chapter 3 and verse 4 says, Scarcely had I passed by them when I found him whom my soul loves. Whom my soul loves. So can I have any other friends, the question comes. I mean, does this mean that the only relationship I can have in life 
I mean, it sounds kind of boring. What, can I not have any other friends of the opposite sex? Well, the idea of exclusivity here is not that I can't have any other relationships, but it is that I reserve my first, my best, and my most for my lifetime partner. In other words, anything else can't compare to the love and the relationship that I have with my spouse. Nothing comes close. That's what I mean by exclusive. My time, my affection, my emotion. We don't let other people meet our marital needs. And we don't meet other people's marital needs. Period. If our marital needs are not being met, they go unmet. Until God moves and changes things. So romantic love is sparked when it's exclusive. Now today we're going to talk about this kind of love is ignited when it's expressed. Now you see, we're going to talk about expressive love this morning because this is a subject for which many of us struggle with. Marriage is now kind of settled in our lives. We've gone now 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. And, you know, sad to say, but this is not really a joke. 25 years ago, we got married. I told her on that altar I loved her. And by golly, as that ever changes, I'll let her know. <laughs> now, we laugh. But sadly, that's kind of what's taking place in many of our marriages. That's not going to work. Because there's some stuff that's got to be said. It's got to be expressed often, if not often, regularly, and sometimes daily. There's not many things more difficult than living in a marriage where one of the partners is emotionally constipated and the other person is emotionally famished. That's sad. That's hard. That's difficult. Now, here are the two main characters in this story. You've got the Shulamite woman, and God is very careful to make sure, again, that we understand marriage is a man and a woman. You've got the Shulamite woman, and you've got the shepherd boy. So God's very clear about that. And these two obviously have a Ph.D. in expressing love. I just dare you to read the whole book. It's pretty amazing. We can learn a lot from these two. So we're going to answer this question this morning. Why should I express my love to my partner? We're going to answer that question. Why should I express my love to my partner? Why? And here's the answer. The answer is because it is needed. It's needed. There's no one here today who would say, I don't need my spouse at times to express their love to me. All of us need it. So we're focusing on marriage. But I do believe these apply to other relationships as well. So in order to do that, let's go to Song of Solomon chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. You're welcome to look at it in your Bible or just on the screen. I've put the verses on the screen because there's a lot of them and sometimes it's easier to stay focused. She says here, now, now bear in mind, can I say this before we read this? When I read about the Shulamite woman and, and, and her shepherd boy... I picture this woman as being confident, beautiful, and smart. I mean, this girl's got it together. 
I mean, really, once you read this entire book, you know, you, you just think a whole lot more of this girl. I mean, she's just an amazing girl. She's a phenomenal person. And I picture someone as being stunning and beautiful and, I mean, Miss America type. So notice what she says about herself in verse 5. I'm very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not, do not look at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. This does not sound like the woman for which I perceived. I thought that this would be someone who is very confident and beautiful and smart, but it seems as if she has self-doubt. It seems as if there are some things about herself that she just doesn't like. There are some things about her that that are not attractive in her own mind. She seems to be focused on her flaws, the things she wished were different. And you know, we can be like that. We can be like that sometimes, focusing on our flaws. I know there's been times in my marriage where I know my wife has felt that way, especially after her surgeries, especially after the things that she went through. You know, don't don't, don't look at me. And I've got things that aren't like they were. Now, if you understand culture, you'll understand why she was embarrassed about being dark and about having a tan. In the Western world, tans are like the thing, right? I mean, we have all these tanning beds. We everybody, People charge tons of money to get in a hot bed and fry themselves. It's crazy. We consider in the Western world tans to be a beautiful thing and a thing that rich people can afford, you know. But in the Eastern world, it's, it's, it's light skin. It's white skin. You see, they would associate... <clears throat> A tan with someone who was poor and someone who worked out in the fields. Someone who worked out in, in, under the sun and got baked every day. And they didn't consider that to be something that they, you should be proud of. And so she explains in further detail, if you look at the verses again, <clears throat> Ken, she says, I'm very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Like the tents of Kedar, I, those were shepherd's tents that were made of of skins of animals that were dark, tanned skins. That's like my skin, like, like the curtains of Solomon. Over-tanned skin, she said. She said, don't look at me. Don't look at me. I, I, I don't think that I'm, I'm very pretty. The, the sun's looked on me. It's a pretty big thing. She feels badly about herself. And then she goes on to say, my mother's sons, obviously stepbrothers, it seems, at least possibly, were angry with me. She said, they made me keepers of the vineyards. They made me go out and work. They said, listen, girl, you're working out in the field. Say, get out there and work. And they made me work. And so my own vineyard, my own body, I've not been able to keep. And speaking about him, she said in Song of Solomon, chapter 5 and verse 10, my beloved is radiant and ruddy. That that word radiant is white. He's white. He's distinguished among 10,000. She seems as if she is saying here that He's, he, he's wealthier than I am. He's, he lives in an up echelon of society. And I'm just embarrassed that I can't be prettier for him. A woman that is so loved and adored still fights, hear me men, negative feelings. Negative feelings. 
if this woman in the Song of Solomon needed to, to hear love expressed, then who here this morning does not? If she did, if she did of all people, then who here does not need to hear those things? Every single person here needs to hear love expressed. No one is so successful. No one is so beautiful that they don't need desperately to hear at times from their spouse. You are beautiful. You're beautiful. How many women here today are thirsty for love to be expressed? Feeling ignored, maybe feeling neglected by their spouse. Longing to hear that they're accepted and they're loved just like they are. That's not just a female need, ladies. How many men, faithful men, hardworking men, but married to a woman that's always focused on the negative? It's always something negative. Worse, I wrote this, worse than the loneliness of prolonged singleness. Deeper than the pain of losing your spouse is the wound of a spouse who, if, who is physically present but emotionally absent and communicates by their silence, by not expressing love, they communicate these words. You know what? You really don't matter to me very much. That's sad, isn't it? And that's going on in so many marriages. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27 is the cure because it says withhold not good from them to whom it is due when it's in the power of your hand to do it. How many of you would say it's a good thing to tell your spouse you love her and, and or you love him and she's beautiful or you're handsome or you're great or you're wonderful or thank you. How many of you say those are good things? Then why aren't we doing it? Why are we withholding a good thing when it's in the power of our hand to do it? So here we go. Three truths about expressing your love. Number one, express your love, number one, through verbal communication. Guys struggle with this. This is an area guys struggle with. So even though we're talking to both genders, I, I want to give you an illustration. I want to tell you what I'm talking about. Expressing your love through verbal confirmation. Uh, last night, well, actually, last week, Chloe made donuts for the dessert fundraiser. And she worked hard on these donuts. And so last night, she's in the kitchen, right? I'm, I'm thinking about this sermon, so I'm, 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 you know, about 24 hours before I preach, I'm always looking for illustrations, right? That, that, hoping the Holy Spirit affirms what you're going to speak. So, so this is one of those illustrations. So she's cooking these donuts. And I'm like, hey, what are you doing? She goes, I'm making donuts again. I'm like, oh, man, what's up with that? And so well, mom said, you know, to make some more. And so she's making these donuts... And I mean, they're smelling great. She's working on it. She's mixing the, the cake mix, you know, putting them in the little donut holder, putting the little thing down, making sure they cook just right, taking them out, putting more in. Lots of work, lots of effort to make all this stuff working. And she's getting a little bit territorial about her kitchen. You know, Gloria Ann's trying to mess these. She get away from me. I know this. Daddy, do something, you know. I mean, this is a lot of work. And then she says something like this. She says, I think this is how she said something about, should I put the icing on now? And I think Caroline said, no, don't worry about that now. That's not, that's not important. Uh, Icing is not nearly as important as the cake itself. You see, marriage is like that. Think about it. It's a lot of cake and a little icing. 
You see, when it comes to communication in your marriage, compliments are the icing. But verbal confirmation is the cake. And we're going to get to compliments in just a minute. We're going to talk about compliments, but we're just going to tag that on to the end of the sermon. Because I'm afraid that too many of us are trying to live off of compliments. Man, you got to see my girl, man. She's a bae. I'm just learning that. B-A-E. She's a bae. Let me tell you something about that, young man. Let me tell you something about your bae. You better have something else about that girl you fired up about other than that. Because she won't look like that after a few years. Come on now, wait a minute. Hang in there. We need to be more focused on the part that doesn't last forever. I've been married for 28 years. My wife and I often talk about the. Look, I, I love my wife. And I've said this, and I've confirmed this, and she's confirmed. It's, it's, look, I had hair back then. If she married me for my hair, it's over. <laughs> you know. There were things about both of us that were different. Our bay days are over. <laughs> God has given us a deeper thing. And these two, these two, they have it. This Shulamite lady and this shepherd boy have it. Notice chapter number 1 in verse 15. Look at this. He says this. He says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. No specific feature mentioned. Just you, baby. You're beautiful. You are. The essence of who you are is beautiful. And then in the very next verse, he says, or she says, Behold, You are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. So you've got verse 15, where he says you're beautiful. You've got verse 16, where she says you are beautiful, or you're handsome. And it's almost as if they are going back and forth, not with compliments, but with a, a passionate expression of love for who this person is. It's the person He is affirming not the physical attributes. It's the totality of who they are. And we must express love through verbal communication. Who we are. Not what you like, but but who you are. Now, there's going to be some times in your marriage where this is very critical. So I want you to hear me on this. This It's very important. There are going to be times in your marriage that you come to a critical place, a hard time, a tough time, a challenging time, and there are going to be some things that you need to do in order to be able to make it through those times. So here we are. Critical times for verbal affirmation. Number one, when we fail. This is critical. You see, because you are going to fail. If you've been married for a year, There is some area in your life where you have let your spouse down in. Could be an argument. Could be something that was said that wasn't meant to be said, but it was said and you can't take it back. It could be a a, a financial mistake. It could just be a, a, a situation that you sort of let your spouse down in. We all fail. And during those times, we've got to get beside our partner when they failed and say, this is not who you are, and I know that. I know it. 
I know you failed. I know there's a mistake. I know you feel like a failure. Maybe, you, maybe it's a loss of a job, a situation, a failure in his life or her life where we need to come alongside each other with verbal confirmation and say, I didn't marry you because you're successful. I married you because I love you. Successful, failure, doesn't make any difference, babe. You're stuck with me the rest of your life. Number two, when others reject us. When others reject us. In the family, sometimes we experience rejection. In the workplace, hey, in the ministry, man, people that have pushed us away. That's when we need to, to know that those closest to us are not also pushing us away. I'm convinced that suicides, so many people who have taken their lives often have taken their lives because they've been pushed away and rejected and nobody came beside them and say, I'm not pushing you away. I love you. You say, well, have you got an example of this? Ah, how about Jesus? Everybody come with Jesus' examples? Those are kind of the best, aren't they? So John chapter 6 on the screen, listen to this. John 6, 66, interesting, 666. In that verse, John 666 says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more. His own disciples took off and rejected him. We're out here, Jesus. we, We know what you've done for us. We know what you've said. We know all, but you know what? We're leaving you. We're rejecting you, Jesus. It's not popular to follow you anymore, so we're out of here. And look how Jesus felt. The sinless, perfect son of God, deity, experienced rejection. And and, and if you will, in his humanity, he says to the others, you guys leaving too? You You guys taking off too? And I love love the response of Peter. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. In his humanity, Jesus felt the pain of people rejected him. And if Jesus was encouraged during a time of rejection, how much more are we going to be encouraged when we've been rejected? I remember when I was going through something like that. A lot of our church wouldn't know this now, but years ago our church transitioned and I lost a lot of friends. I lost every friend I had from my alma mater. I don't have any more of those friends. They're long gone. And a lot of churches uh, stopped sending their kids to our college. And man, I've never been so rejected in my life. If you would have asked me, who is your best friend? I know who I would have told you. I would have given you his name. But when we did something like put drums on the platform, I got a seven-page letter from that friend saying he would never talk to me again. And so these types of things happen. And you know what I felt like? You know, it's funny. People have said to me, man, preacher, I'll tell you one thing I respect about you is when it got tough, you hung in there. And I'm like, if you only knew. I wanted to run so far away. I wanted to get out of here. I wanted to go somewhere else. I... I felt like I had messed everything up. Everybody had rejected me. We had a few families, in our, even in our church at that time, that left. It was tough. And so I'm looking this week in a file in my office, and, and I almost wept when I took it out of my cabinet. I should have brought it into the pulpit, but this is not about Caroline. It's about Jesus. But 
there's a, a file that's about this thick, and I'm not joking. It's so thick, you, you can't hardly carry it without putting it in a bag because it's full of letters that my wife has written me since I've been pastor of this church. A couple hundred letters. And so I found, I started reading them. And I'm just reading them one after the other. I'm like, this is, and then I come to this one. And this was one that she had written to me during that time. Thank you for being a great Christian. I felt like the worst Christian in the world. Thank you for teaching me how to respond to critical things. I know Satan can discourage even the most positive of people. And man, was I ever discouraged. I know you have Jesus, but I want to be the one who stands beside you and supports you on this earth. God has shown me so much personally about being more like Jesus through you in my Bible time. He seems to be speaking so clearly to me about how the Pharisees treated Jesus. They always majored on the minor. They worried about his associations. I just believe God wants, us, wants to use you for such a time as this, sweetheart. I know you want to please him first. I love you and I'm praying for you. I'm with you 110%. Thank you for teaching me how to really love and have more joy. I am nowhere close to you, but I'm learning. Each year gets better and better serving him right beside you. God is good. I love you, Carol Ann. After I got that letter, I compared that to the seven-page letter saying you'll never talk to me again. And I'm like, who cares? I could care less. good guy to at least one person but you know what it was to the most important person my spouse when everybody else walks out i want caroline to be the one who walks in because that's what we need we need that verbal affirmation in times of rejection and then when circumstances send the wrong message you're going to have bad circumstances come i'm telling you there are going to be tough times that come to your marriage. And I, my wife has been sick unto death. We have a disabled child. Richard is going to share. Richard McGrew is going to share in just a minute. A ministry called Families and Addiction. And he'll be very intimate and honest with you as he makes these, this announcement of a new ministry starting in our church. He'll be intimate and honest about some of the hard things they've been through with the Kilbys. Those are tough times. Those are tough on marriages. I mean, those are circumstances... And they begin to send a message in the relationship. And things get tough. Have you ever said this? You know, everything was great until whatever you're about to say is a circumstance, a situation that has come into your life that all of a sudden is sending the wrong message that all of a sudden it's not good anymore. It's not good. It'll never be good because of this. Whew. That's tough. To deal with in marriage. And when those time comes, you know what your spouse needs to hear? Baby, we're going to make it. We're going to make it, sweetheart. I know this is tough. I know you're not well. I know this is a hardship. I know our son is wayward. I know this has happened or that. But we are not, I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you. I love you. And, and, and you're a good dad. You're a good husband. You're a good pastor. You're a good man. And vice versa, man, to that woman. And then number four, when things are changing... When things are changing, this is a critical time. When our church was changing, it was critical for you to know that I wasn't going anywhere. It was critical for me at times to know that you were here and we were together. And think about that in the context of marriage when things get tough and things change. Because they will change. Now let's talk how to express love. 
How do we express love? Number two, this is how. We talked about the importance of expressing love. It's needed, right? But how do you do it? Two ways. Number one, you express love through value comparisons. Value comparisons. We learned that from the Song of Solomon. It's a book full of value comparisons. Look at this verse on the screen. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 8. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, he says, following the tracks of the flock. Okay. If you don't know, O most beautiful among all the women in the world. That's what he's saying. In other words, are right, you ready for it right on the top shelf? There are seven, close to seven billion people on planet Earth. Am I right? If we just said, okay, three and a half billion are women and three and a half billion are men. What she is saying and what I am saying to my spouse this morning is this. You are one and three and a half billion. Nobody like you. I mean, I don't care. The other three and a half billion can have it. I got you, baby. Value, you're worth more to me than every other woman in all the world. Wouldn't it be great if every wife in our church felt that way? My husband is so focused on me and my strengths that there is no one in his mind that can touch me. You talk about adding value to your marriage. That's a great thing. You know what this does? This eliminates insecurity and jealousy, period. And that's important if you travel at all. That's important if you work with other women. This, my friend, is valuable information. This is a great lesson. Now, look, look at her value comparison. I love this. His was, you're one in three and a half billion. Now, look at hers. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 3. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. Need a little help? Here we go. You know, I'm walking through the forest. And, and, and honey, I'm seeing all these trees. Trees everywhere. A forest full of trees. Big trees, little trees, leaves with branch, uh, branches with leaves, branches with no leaves. I mean, just tree after tree after tree. It's so boring. It's a forest full of trees. And then, lo and behold, an apple tree. I mean, like out of nowhere, there he stands, an apple tree. I'm like, what in the world? And all of a sudden, I'm like, that is the greatest tree I've ever seen. I go over to this apple tree. It's like the tree of all trees. I walk up to it. It's awesome. It's big. It's strong. I reach up and grab one of the apples. I take a bite of it. It's so red and luscious. It's like the greatest thing I have ever sunk my teeth into. Honey, that's how I feel about you, babe. I walk through this world. I see all these guys, guys, guys everywhere. Man, man, man. And then I see you. Woo! Man, am I ever lucky. Value comparison. Every man desperately needs to know that he is the best. Value comparisons express so much. So let's work on it, shall we? All right, here we go. So your husband just finished mowing the lawn. 
He just walked in the house. You ready? A. Here's A. Thanks for mowing the lawn. Oh, no problem. Here's B. Wow! Amazing! I mean, listen, as hard as you work all week long to provide for our family, and here on the weekends, you're out there getting our lawn to look so fun. You are the greatest, honey. I love you. All right, man, answer. A or B? Thank you for your honesty. All right, let's go to the ladies here. We just finished eating dinner. Nice meal. Good. It's really good. Oh, thanks, sweetheart. Appreciate that. A or B. You know, I've been to every restaurant in town. I'm telling you, I've, I've spent $100 on a meal. But I'm going to tell you right now, sweetheart, there is no comparison to what I just had to any meal in this entire town. Sweetheart, you are some kind of cook. Ladies, A or B? Thank you. My wife, she makes a chocolate chip cheesecake to die for. I mean, literally, this thing is like phenomenal. I mean, we've auctioned this thing off. I think, Debbie, one time, I think you bought it for like $300. It's so good. I mean, seriously. Never forget that. This, this, this is amazing. So, so every time she makes this chocolate chip cheesecake, I will say something like this in the house. I'll, I'll, I'll take the first bite, then I'll say, any restaurant in town, this is 20 bucks a slice. Honey, nobody makes cheesecake like you. It's a truth. But the point I'm making is value comparisons express love. You know, I'm trying to help my wife now with this servant. So when I get home, she'll say, honey, I tell you, I've heard a lot of servants. I just, I just, okay. Or what about this? You know, like the guy that, you know, your wife's, Puts on a new outfit, you know, and nice dress. Nice dress, you know. Well, thank you. Or as one guy said, I've seen a lot of models. (laughs) So just kidding, okay. (laughs) Oh, listen, there's nobody that looks as pretty as you do in that dress. Value comparisons. Now let's talk about the icing on the cake and we'll be done. Perfect timing. Here it is. Express your love. Ready for this? Now let's go to compliments and finish up. Compliments can't compare to the essence of who someone is, but, but they're needed. So let's talk about this. Express your love through visual compliments. Now this is different than value comparison. This is where we picture, we use pictures to communicate our love, and, and, and they are brilliant at this. The, these are powerful pictures in the Song of Solomon. Let me start with, uh, real quick, with a few verses. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. This is the man speaking, okay? The man. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you're beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. By the way, I don't know that I use the same exact terminology. <laughs> Might not be wise to come home and say, honey, your hair is like a goat. It doesn't work. You have, again, you have to be, you have to understand these times. Okay, very important, very important when you study your Bible. When was it written and who was it written to? Always important. It was written back in 3,000 years ago when the countryside would have been, and this is what he meant, would have been, he was comparing her to a countryside full of sheep. 
and it would have looked beautiful. And, and if you've never seen that, you would not know. But he knew, he saw it, and that beautiful, beautiful look of those sheep on the countryside reminded him of our hair. So it makes sense. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn <laughs> ewes or sheep that have come up from the washing. In other words, they're white, okay? <laughs> All of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost its young. In other words, you have lots of teeth, and not one is missing. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in the rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Amazing statements. And then there's some other statements he makes in Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 4 through 6, if you'd like to read those. Let me skip, though, Ken to Song of Solomon 5, verses 10. This is how she responds. She responds like this. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of waters, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold. Set with jewels, his body is polished ivory, bed decked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. He is altogether desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Now, I hesitate because we have so much fun studying this, and I hesitate to be sarcastic because as we read that, we may be thinking again, about these verses and trying to literally compare them to vernacular we'd use today, but you're missing it. What you need to be getting is this is fantastic. This is beautiful. Because God Almighty is fired up about two people who are honoring one another, honoring what God has made by honoring one another. That's what God's fired up about. He loves it when we honor one another. This is an important piece of having a great, incredible, lump-in-the-throat marriage. Visual compliments. Saying them often. Gary Smalley, probably the greatest writer on marriage there is. Some great books on marriage. And I recommend, I've got a list of books I recommend to our young newlyweds and those that are going through premarital counseling And I recommend everything Gary Smalley writes. So I take what he says very seriously. And here's what he says. He asks a question. Here's the question. What one thing would improve your marriage more than any other one thing? This is a question he asks couples all over the nation. And his answer is this. Without exception, the answer is always communication. Without exception. Now the significance of that, the significance of Gary Smalley's answer here is that if the most important book on marriage in the Bible is on communication, and Song of Solomon is all about marriage and communication, verbal verbal communication, verbal expressions of love, then expressing your love is the greatest communication according to this book that there is. And you do that through verbal confirmation, through value comparisons, and through visual compliments. Now, let me close with four things that everyone can say. 
Because I know that we struggle with this. It's like, where do I start? I don't know. I mean, like, she's so good at it. I mean, like, they're pros. I mean, you're right, preacher. They got a PhD. Like, that stuff, like, I mean, I don't even know how to write poems and stuff. I've never wrote a love song. Like, my son just wrote a love song to his girlfriend. I haven't done that in a while, you know. (laughs) I used to write my wife poems all the time. I've not done that in a while. You need to get back to that, right, honey? You can say amen. Amen. Okay. I'm not just, I just, I don't know. It's not, I'm not good at that. All right. Here's four things you can say, whether you're good or not. Number one, I love you. I love you. I love you. My wife and I were texting before the service. You know, we always do. She gets me fired up, you know, praying for you. Love you. Thanks for being patient with me this morning. What happened was Glorianne got up like super early. Now on Sundays, we like Glorianne to sleep in until 7.30. That's our special needs daughter. But if she gets, we wake up at like 5.45 or 6 on Sundays. She got up at 6.15. Now what that means is everything changes. Now we can't do our normal stuff. She's trying to get lunch ready. I'm trying to get ready. I got to get out of the house to get to the church. She's tr- so we got this system going, right? But Glorianne messed it all up. So she says, after you got out, I decided to just speak positive life words. And the morning went well. Because I told her as I got out of the car today, honey, it's going to be okay. We're going to be fine. You know, give her a kiss. Told her I loved her. This is one of the things I was taught yesterday at that ladies' conference. Stop complaining and whining and look at the positive and the goodness of God because he has great plans for me each day. This is the day the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Hallelujah. And I told her, I love you, sweetheart. You know, these words need to be said every day. I love you. I love you. I love you. Number two, can we all say this? I need you. I need you. That doesn't take a rocket scientist. That's, that's not like really hard to say. But when's the last time you looked at your wife and say, I need you. I can't live this life without you. And I understand those are strong words. And and maybe some of those words would be only reserved for Jesus Christ. But could we just for a moment allow our marriages to be what God intended them to be? And that is just a testimony of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you can't live without Jesus, then why don't we feel that way about our spouses? Because that's the greatest testimony. That's the greatest thing that we can say to this world is, is our love for our spouses are very much a picture of God's love for us. I need you. What about this? There's no one like you. No one. Because she's worried sometimes. She's wondering. I wonder if there's anybody else. I wonder. Or he's worried. I keep saying she because I'm a guy, right? But I mean, this goes for both. Is anybody else out there? I wonder if they got their... I just... I come back off of a trip and maybe my wife's wondering. You know, I wonder if he's... Who knows? I don't know her insecurities. I, I, there are times when the devil could... Right? Come on. Even in our marriage. Honey, there's no one like you. Really? Say it again. There's no one like you. Number four. What about this? I thank God for you. You are God's greatest gift to me on this earth. Not the kids. I just cussed in in some of your minds. I I do anything for my kids. Why don't you put your kids on the shelf for a little bit and say that about your spouse? I don't understand these statements. Well, we're staying together for the kids. What is that? 
What do you mean by that? Where did you get that mentality? Listen, you wouldn't have the kids without each other. That's first. The kids are not what ought to be number one. I thank God for you. These are great words to say, honestly, at the end of the day in the bedroom. I love you. I need you. There's no one like you. I thank God for you. I'm I'm talking about expressing your love. And I know I'm done, and this is our own. I've finished our marriage lessons. Next week, we're going to talk about kids and parenting, and it's going to be fun. But I pray that God will take these words and stir our marriages for good and for God because I'm convinced that if we can strengthen our homes, we can truly see revival in our, in our, in our church. I really believe that. And I, I, I hope that God will allow this, these messages to really add some spice to our marriages and ignite, spark the love. Let's bow our heads, shall we?